welcome back to Real Seekers. I'm your host, Dale, the Real Seeker. And I just want to finish off my Faith and Reason series. So last time I did, uh, finished off my God series, God Exists series, looking at the ontological argument and Psalms version. And then I got into this interesting question of, well, let's say our arguments fail. Um, we, we are, you know, we don't, we should suspend judgment. We don't know whether to believe or disbelieve based on the evidence. And then someone asks, philosophers have asked, well, what do you do in that situation? And last time I kind of, we looked at Michael Scriven, an atheist who said, well, in that situation, actually it's immoral for you to be an agnostic. You should be an atheist. You should disbelieve in theism if your evidence doesn't suggest one way or the other. Um, you know, so if all the arguments fail, be an atheist, according to this guy. And the reason for that is, look, he, he distinguishes between positive and negative agnosticism. Negative agnosticism is just the new atheist lack theism position. And in that in that uh, situation, it's uh, you're really an atheist deep down. If you claim to be an agnostic, you're either lying or you're ignorant or dumb or something like that, according to Scriven. Um, so the only real agnostic is the positive agnostic. But then Scriven would say, if you're a positive agnostic, you have a reason for thinking you don't know. You can't, you don't know or you can't know whether God exists or not, whether to believe or whether to disbelieve. Uh, so interestingly, Scriven argues, well, that, that form of agnosticism, that has a burden of proof. You have to prove that you're an agnostic and we can debate that. Atheism is the default. So that was his argument. And it's an epistemic or rational ought. Uh, let me just share the screen here to go back to the slides. So, um, and you can see it's an epistemic, uh, atheism is presumed. Blaise Pascal was a Christian theist who argued the opposite and said, no, when you're in that so-called agnostic state, the, no evidence to believe, no evidence to disbelieve, you should believe in theism because that's the prudent choice. You should make a Pascalian wager and wage, uh, you know, a wager on God existing and therefore believe in theism. And today we're going to look at a couple other philosophers who answer differently. So we have uh, William Clifford, who I want to look at first, who says, no, agnosticism is the right position. And not only that, it's a morally obligated or responsible position. So Michael Scriven, he looks at what you rationally or epistemically ought to do. He thinks that's atheism. Pascal says you should look at what's pragmatic or prudent for you to believe, and that's theism. According to Pascal's wager, Clifford says, no, you morally ought to be an agnostic. Um, and then we're going to get to William James as our last position today. Um, so he's got a nuanced view, as I said, so under certain specific circumstances, you have the right to believe, to will to believe the religious hypothesis. So today we're going to, first we're going to look at William Clifford's uh, moral, the ethics of agnosticism or belief. So the first thing to note is, okay, in epistemology, we have this position known as evidentialism. I've covered that in previous shows. Just basically you proportion your degree of belief to the degree of evidence, either the strength or weakness of the evidence that you have. And applied to religious belief, this means, look, one could be either a theistic evidentialist, an atheistic evidentialist, or an agnostic evidentialist. Those aren't mutually exclusive. Um, so getting into the ethics of belief with William Clifford. Look, Clifford argues in his paper 
which will be on my blog at realseekerministries.wordpress.com for free for you guys. He says, look, it is always wrong everywhere and all times in any situation for anyone to believe and or disbelieve anything on insufficient evidence. Zero exceptions. This is on page 403 of his uh, paper. And he gives the parable of a ship owner, right? So he says, well, look, let's say we have the ship owner who owns a, a boat. It's made many crossings from the UK to America and back, um, but it's an old boat. And he has no evidence at all saying that the boat will make it to the, to the US this time around. But instead, he has strong evidence from his sailors and the, cap, the captain of the boat telling him, look, we're your employees. The ship isn't going to make it. It will sink if we try to go again. Um, so he has strong evidence saying to disbelieve that the ship will make it to the U.S. Nevertheless, via wish, pure wish fulfillment, he, he sincerely forms the belief that it will make, make it across and he sends it out. What happens? It sinks and they all die. Now, what Clifford says in his notion of this ethics of belief is that the ship owner is morally, not just epistemically blameworthy, but morally blameworthy. It was immoral of him uh, to form the belief itself when it was contrary to the evidence. So, you know, this is this is a bit different. It's not necessarily saying, oh, he's morally blameworthy for his actions of ordering the captain to go out on the ship or something like that. It's saying, sure, maybe you're, that's immoral. I, I don't know. But I'm specifically saying that the formation of the belief is immoral in this case. And that's regardless of what happens, whether the ship, uh, you know, in, in our scenario, the ship sinks. Let's say it didn't sink. The heat, this uh, ship owner would still have been immoral for forming his belief contrary to the evidence based on wish fulfillment. Um, so yeah, he says, look, the question of moral right and wrong, right or wrong has got to do with the origin of his belief via wish fulfillment, not the matter or content of it, not what it was, but how he got it. So it's not whether it turned out to be true or false, but whether he had a right to believe it, this proposition on the evidence that was before him. Um, so we have similar concepts today. I mean, we've looked at various things. There are criminal negligence in the law. You can be, you do nothing wrong action-wise, but through your negligence, you know, you just believe everything will be all right and stuff like that. Uh, or per perhaps a more appropriate, because that would be more about inaction. Uh, that's what that criminal negligence would be. Who knows what your beliefs are? But drunk driving, let's say you get drunk and, hey, you sincerely believe I'll be fine. I can drive and I won't get into an accident. You sincerely believe that based on wish fulfillment, based on a misjudgment and stuff like that. And you go out and you kill someone. Drunk driving, you would be immoral for having formed that belief that you wouldn't hurt anyone and that you could drive when you couldn't. Um, okay, so then Clifford uh, looks at some objections and he considers them. So the first objection he considers is look, no actions are immoral, uh, not our methods for obtaining beliefs. Our beliefs are not neither moral nor immoral. It's what we, uh, what's that quote? It's not what we are on the inside or not what we believe on the inside. It's what we do that defines us, right? That's, it's what we do that is immoral or immoral. 
that's a bit of a Batman quote there. Um, what's William, uh, William Clifford's reply here? Look, both are immoral. No one denies that actions are immoral, but the formation of your belief, the methods by which you obtain your beliefs and or disbeliefs can be immoral versus more or moral too. Okay, maybe a second objection. Well, what if the ethics of belief only applies to those monumental, monumentous propositions, right? You're talking about with your ship example, people's lives were at stake. So that's why it was immoral for him to form that belief based on wishful thinking. But if I just believe my shirt's red when it's actually brown today, um, that's a trivial belief. Who cares if I come to a false belief? That It, it won't do anything. That, that's neither moral nor immoral. Well, uh, uh, Clifford replies, look, no belief, no, no matter how trifling or fragmentary it may seem in the moment, is truly insignificant. Every belief we form matters in the end they're ultimately everything is connected and we have this moral duty to ourselves and to others because others will be impacted if i believe my shirt is red right now that will impact other people over time and it impacts myself they have our beliefs have consequences according to clifford um and especially over time these have psychological and axiological impacts or consequences on us in the first place, right? We sort by lying to ourselves, we twist and would corrupt ourselves psychologically and axiologically. We no longer value the truth in the same way, perhaps, and and we value lies. And oh, okay, well, I'll just lie to say whatever I need to get, and this can hurt our relationships. And from there, our our work, our careers, and so on and so forth. So. Uh, look, everything is interconnected, would say Clifford. You may think tell, um, that uh, forming a little trivial harmless belief in the here and now doesn't hurt anybody, but it does, and it will, over, especially over time. Okay, the third objection is, well, look, my beliefs are my own business. Mind your business, uh, atheist or skeptic. Uh, uh, or it should be opposite. I, I don't know. Uh, it's both, actually. So mind your business, whoever you are. Um, okay, so how, how does um, Clifford respond to that? Again, the same thing. Nobody's beliefs are a private affair. They all uh, are related and interconnected, and we have a duty to ourselves and to others to prevent any and all consequences, uh, both immediate and indirect, consequences that may result from faulty beliefs uh, formed not on the basis of rational intent, uh, base, basis of evidence and rationally. So he has this interesting quote here. He says, look, <clears throat> it is not only the leader of men, statesman, philosopher, or poet that owes this burden uh, uh, bounden, uh duty to mankind i have no idea what that says i shouldn't have put it in this uh handwriting font it's okay so every rustic who delivers in the village alehouse his slow infrequent sentences sentences may help to kill or keep alive the fatal superstitions which dog his race every hard-worked wife of an artisan may transmit to her children belief which shall knit society together or rend it into pieces. 
No simplicity of mind, no obscurity of station can escape the universal duty, moral duty of questioning all that we believe. Um, so yeah, he, that's his response on that front. And I, I gave his good little quote there from his paper on page uh, 401 there. Okay, uh, a fourth objection he considers, well, look, well, sometimes we know of cases where there is actually no unintended harm that results, uh, just when our beliefs don't correspond to the evidence, nothing happens. Um, once again, Clifford has this notion that everything is connected, so he says, no, uh, you're just wrong. You better believe that someone is always harmed whenever you lie, and he gives that theft example. He says, look, it's the same with so-called trivial act, immoral actions like stealing. You steal a small candy, oh, that doesn't hurt anyone, no one's hurt in the grand scheme of things. But no, in reality, it does hurt. The owner is hurt, he's out money. And especially if every if all the other people think like you, he's out a lot of money and that really hurts him. Secondly, it hurts you because you, you corrupt your character and you, stealing's no problem. Okay, I stole candies, mm, I'm gonna steal a chocolate bar this time. Oh my goodness, okay, now I'm going all out chocolate bar and a pop oops i am a hardcore criminal now um yeah and from there it goes up to stealing cars and stuff like that you corrupt yourself over time um and this i think is is indicative as christians we definitely believe this the sin disease that we have the more we cater to and sin the more and more corrupt we get the more ingrained entrenched into our characters it becomes this is why we need to struggle against it and we need the help of God to overcome it. No one can come to faith without the aid of the Holy Spirit and that sort of thing. And we need to continue even after in sanctification to struggle against the flesh, as Paul says. Um, we can't allow ourselves to get into the mindset where it's like, oh, this is no big deal. I'll just steal a small candy. Jesus, you died for my sins. I, I promise I won't do it again. Just this once kind of thing. No, we can never say, have that mindset. Uh, that's a corrupting, sinful mindset. And trust me, one will lead to two, two will lead to a thousand, and so on and so forth. And it'll just never stop. And sin will always compound um, until you're totally corrupted and you lose your salvation. Um, I know that's controversial, but I don't believe in the perseverance of the saints. I believe that uh, you can apostatize. The Bible warns us about it. New Testament is literal when it says you can lose your faith. Okay, a final objection here is, look, it's, this is standard is too onerous. It's just too hard. I don't have time to do it. It's impossible for me to look up evidence for every single one of my beliefs. I'm not immoral. That's not my fault. I don't have time to do the research. Um, how many times have I heard that from SNS skeptics on the Shroud of Turin, right? When I brought up my real seeker criteria, uh, we would hear from the skeptics, oh, I, I don't have time to waste. I, I, oh, that's just, it's too hard for me. I can't uh, even read one source that you give me about the Shroud of Turin or on the resurrection from uh, scholars and stuff like that, because, you know, it's just too hard. Uh, God, you got to make it easy for me. Why don't you just show up and tell me you exist? You know, I'll, I'll press your buttons, God, and you'll do whatever I say upon command. That's the way it should be. That's the way these atheists and skeptics thanked. Uh, or, or thought on SNS, right? And that's what this objection here is, is saying. Look, you have this moral duty for your beliefs and disbeliefs. Um, well, that's too hard. Well, what is uh, Clifford say? Well, too bad, too, so sad. <laughs> Again, just uh, like in the other video, but 
If you've got an issue, here's a tissue. Look, you have this moral duty regardless. Look, fulfilling your moral duties isn't always easy. It doesn't matter whether it's about beliefs or actions. It's sometimes really, really hard to do the right thing as opposed to the wrong thing. And we get really tempted and want to do the evil, satanic, wrong thing in the moment, whether that's an action or have the wrong belief um, because it's psychologically comforting to, to, our, to us. You know, atheists and skeptics, they don't like judgment. They really don't like this notion of heaven or hell and stuff and this judge them being judged it's uncomfortable for them so engage they engage in wish fulfillment and just say oh, i don't believe that no there is no heaven or hell that's all ridiculous nonsense it's made up there's no god um clifford clifford would have no none of that and he would say nope you had a moral duty to believe in god to believe in hell and to believe in judgment you don't your fault your problem you are immoral um and I don't care whether you think it was so too hard for you to do it. You got to do it. You got to fulfill your duties. Um, so yeah, uh, once again, this is a, a favorite moment. Look, um, if you think it's too hard or you don't have time to fulfill your epistemic and moral duties to have evidence and reasons for your beliefs and or disbeliefs in the case of atheists and skeptics, um, that's tough. You have an issue, grab a tissue. All right. Okay. Um, so yeah, what can we glean from Clifford here? Basically, I think there are two rules that we get concerning the ethics of belief from Clifford. The first is if a person uh, has uh, evidence against some proposition um, and no good evidence in favor of it, then it is morally wrong, immoral for that person to believe the proposition Instead, you have to disbelieve it. And that's what that ship owner example is about. But he also, I think, derives a second rule or principle. If a person has no decisive evidence, either for or against some proposition, like God exists, it is morally wrong for that person to believe, to believe it, just as it's morally wrong for them to disbelieve it. They must. It's their moral duty and imperative to suspend judgment, i.e. to be an agnostic. Uh, so that's what uh, William Clifford would say. And interesting, interestingly, before we get into the next uh, philosopher, the last one, is William James, who has a different answer here. And we'll see, uh, William James, he totally agrees with this first rule of Clifford, but he will disagree with this second rule. Um, so let's, let's uh, get into William James and uh, explain what he has to say here. Right. Uh, hello, and welcome back to Real Seekers. I'm your host, Dale, the Real Seeker. And uh, today is going to be the final uh, solo lecture, video lecture on the Faith and Reason series. So in the last video, we looked at the last argument for God's existence, St. Anselm's ontological argument. We did a historical survey on that. Then we moved on to this interesting question in the philosophy of religion of, okay, well, let's say, look, the arguments for God's existence, they suck. Um, they're unpersuasive, they don't work. Likewise, the evidence for atheism, the problem of evil, hiddenness of God, the incoherence of theism, all these things, they suck, they're unpersuasive. So we're left with, we have no evidence to believe theism, we have no evidence to believe atheism or to disbelieve theism, same thing. What do we do in that case? And we looked at the first option, which is 
um, Michael Scriven, an atheist philosopher in the 1920s. And he basically said, look, in that case, you should presume atheism. You have an epistemic responsibility or a rational ought to believe in atheism because agnosticism and theism have the burden of proof, not atheism. And we kind of went over that argument that he gave. Then we looked at a Christian theist named Blaise Pascal, famous uh, for the Pascal's wager. And he basically said the opposite. No, you should presume theism, believe in theism if you have no evidence one way or the other. And the reason for that is because, uh, look, there are pragmatic or practical stakes going to heaven versus going to hell, which are so high, they, the prudent person would choose to believe in theism no matter what. Today, we're going to look at two other philosophers to finish off our study, William Clifford and William James. And uh, with William Clifford, um, he, he basically adopted the view that, look, we the ethics of belief, we have a moral responsibility, a moral duty, or there's a moral ought whereby we should be agnostic. You suspend judgment. And this is the position that I hold myself as a strict evidentialist. And then after that, we're going to look at William James, who basically says, look, um, in, um, sorry, he provides, well, look, you have the right uh, to will to believe or not. Uh, so there's two positions. If there's no evidence in favor of theism, no evidence in favor of atheism, you can either suspend judgment as, as an agnostic, or because this qualifies under a certain rare set of circumstances, which I'll get into, you can also choose, morally choose, to believe in theism. If you believe, if you disbelieve in theism, you're immoral. Uh, so that's his position. So we're going to look at that. So uh, yeah, with that said, let's get into William Clifford's first. Let me share the screen here. Uh, another objection is my beliefs are my own business. So we all have a duty to ourselves um, and others to believe based on the evidence as we are all connected. So I, I just realized, I think I already uh, did this. So, okay, so yeah, I made a mistake. So so I already recorded my take on um, William Clifford. So let's move on to William James, the final guy here. Um, yeah, I already recorded a video on this, I'm pretty sure. Let me just double check that quickly. Hang on one second. Okay, so I'm unable to minimize. So yeah, so what we will do, um, I wanted to take a look at William James. We just finished our evaluation of William Clifford. Let's now see what William James has to say about this state when we're in a position where our evidence doesn't support believing in theism and our evidence doesn't support believing in atheism and or disbelieving in theism, same thing. Um, well, William Clifford said we should be agnostic, that we have a moral duty to be agnostic. William James is interesting. He says, well, no, you could be agnostic, but you also have the moral right to believe in theism as well, given that this case fits certain circumstances. So let's take a look at that and what he has to say. Let me share the screen here. All right. Go to it now. Okay, so um, remember Clifford's two rules concerning belief. So rule one, William James agrees with this. If a person has against some proposition and no good evidence, 
has evidence against some proposition and no good evidence in favor of it, then it is morally wrong for that person to believe the proposition. They should instead disbelieve it. And that's the ship owner example that Clifford gives. But then Clifford has a second rule. If a person has no decisive evidence, either for or against a proposition, it is morally wrong for that person to believe and or disbelieve it. That person has a moral duty to suspend judgment. That's the only position, agnosticism, that's it. Now, William James says, well, I agree with the first rule, but the second rule is wrong. We, sh we do have a moral duty to be agnostic sometimes, but in some cases, some decisions or some propositions are different where we can either be agnostic or choose to believe the proposition. We can't disbelieve it, but we can be agnostic and or believe it. Uh, so what does he say? So in his writing, the right to believe or the will to believe is what it's called, but it's really a more apt name is the right to believe. So James agrees that, look, there are ethics of belief. It's a moral question whether we believe or disbelieve something. Um, and the manner of which we acquire or obtain our beliefs can be either morally praiseworthy or morally blameworthy. Um, he also says, look, it's important to avoid erroneous beliefs and actions um, with his first rule. But he says, uh, he says Clifford's wrong about this strict only agnostic position because Clifford is just concerned with avoiding errors at all costs. And if we do this, William James says, well, you might lose out on believing and gaining some important truths in this life. Um, and he gives very specific cases where it's okay to believe things even without evidence, any evidence in favor of it in violation to Clifford's rule number two. Um, so what are these things, right? So we have to understand there's a couple principles here. Um, so the first one is um, GT principle. It, we want to gain truth. You'll hear Matt Dillahunty and other atheists and skeptics online try to say, look, what is it I want to do? I want to know as many truths as possible and avoid as many errors as possible. Um, well, William James here is saying, yeah, but sometimes it's impossible to accomplish both. You have to choose which principle is more weighty than the other. And obviously he's saying, look, with Clifford, his stress on being a strict agnostic in the face of no evidence one way or the other you're, you're trying to avoid errors at the expense of gain, potentially gaining really, really important truths. And this is a mistake. Um, so he gives a soldier, uh, the example of a soldier to illustrate, right, as an analogy. And he says, look, it's kind of like a gen military general informing soldiers, no, 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 look, we're, we're just going to keep out of the battle. We can't risk that error of someone getting a single wound. Uh, no, it's better not to fight at all. No, as most military generals know, people are going to get hurt. That's an acceptable loss to win the battle, to win the war for the greater good. Um, so in that case, you just have to risk some errors, uh, some wounds. And it's the same way with truth. You have to risk um, taking on some errors in order to gain certain important truths, perhaps. So he gives some gene uh, counter examples here, and he says, um, look, there's an example of the belief that someone likes you or something romantically. If you just wait, so you have no evidence whatsoever whether they like you or dislike you, and you just wait, you remain aloof, you're never going to get an opportunity for that relationship. You just, 
at a certain point, you just got to believe, yep, this person likes me and take that chance and see what happens kind of thing. And you got to act in accordance with that belief that, yeah, I, I believe, I think there's something there. Let's, let's try it out and see what happens. He also gives the cooperation example. Uh, again, you've got to believe, even if you have no evidence that someone's going to cooperate with you, at some point, in order for cooperation to take place, you're going to have to just trust and believe that this guy will cooperate if you do your part. So you start it. He also gives the example of leaping over a chasm. This mountain climber, he gets stuck in this awkward position where it's do or die. He's, he's kind of, look, if I stay where I am, I'm, I've got this chasm, I'm stuck here, no one can reach me. I can't be saved. If I just choose to stay here, I'm going to freeze to death. I'm going to die. My only option is to get across this chasm and then get down to safety. Man, it's a it's a deep chasm. It looks pretty far to that other side. I have no evidence. I have no idea. Can I leap far enough to make it or not? The evidence doesn't tell me. I have inadequate evidence. Well, William James says, in that case, you better believe. You should believe you make it and you jump. So what is it that these um, um, things have in common? So, okay, before I get into that, so basically um, James's diagnosis of what the problem with Clifford's second rule is about strictly being agnostic and not forming a belief despite no evidence, he says, quote unquote, a rule of thinking which would absolutely prevent me from acknowledging certain kinds of truth if those kinds of truth really were and would be an irrational work, uh, rule. So he's saying, look, if you have no evidence, in some cases, it's downright irrational for you not to believe. Um, and in this case, not to believe in the Lord, your guide. You're a fool if you're an agnostic. But we'll come to that in a moment. Um, okay, so the details of James's view. James does not think that we can just believe anything without evidence. No, most of the things... Uh, he would say Clifford's right. We've got to remain agnostic. But there are certain circumstances where that doesn't hold, as the examples he gave uh, demonstrate. Specifically, James holds that um, uh, Clifford's second rule about strict agnosticism is wrong if you have three factors present, like such as that you know relationships, cooperation, or that mountain man being stuck on the mountain needing to leap the chasm. Number one, you have to have a live option. So it's a genuine option. It's live, it's forced, and it's a momentous decision or choice. If you have that, then it's okay to believe even if you have inadequate evidence, says James. Um, okay, so um, just a little bit of James terminology here. So he says a decision, an option just means you have a decision between two propositions believe or disbelieve or something. Genuine option uh, is one that's live. So that means not dead. It just means, look, both of the alternative propositions are live. They each have some appeal to you. In this case, okay, you can be an agnostic about God or believe in God. Uh, so obviously this is a subjective criterion and it depends on you, whether this is live to you. Uh, secondly, it's got to be forced, meaning it's not avoidable. And there's a little bit of work to understanding this. It says, look, an option where there are only two possible decisions or outcomes, outcomes is more probably more to the means, and not choosing the equivalent of, uh, sorry, and not choosing 
is the same or equivalent to making the choice against the proposition. So, you know, in this case, agnosticism is the, in terms of the outcomes, is exactly the same as disbelieving theism and becoming an atheist. Um, okay, so what he means by avoidable, look, you can take or not take your umbrella. This is the choice that you have. Well, you can just avoid that altogether um, and say, well, you know what? I'm just not going to go out then. If, if when I go out, I have to take an umbrella or I have to not take an umbrella, I can avoid that decision by saying, I'm not going to go out. A forced option is where you don't have that, right? So he gives an example of a job offer. I'll let you read that in the paper. Um, but uh, yeah, let's, you know, for example, a street preacher on the street, take it or leave it. Heaven or hell, you either choose to accept and believe Jesus is God, or you don't, or you don't live your hell, you live your life and you go to hell. You don't get Jesus and you go to hell. Now you might say, well, I can just avoid that. I don't have to reject Jesus. I can just be agnostic and neutral towards him. But in this case, the street preacher would say, no, there's only the two choices. Being agnostic and being an and or being an atheist is just as bad as each other. You go to hell either way. You've got to accept Jesus or you don't. You're forced to make those two things. So that's what he means by forced. Um, and then finally, momentous just means it's not trivial. Uh, it has various ways that it's momentous, right? You may never have another chance to make that decision again. Uh, the decision may be irreversible, uh, or it could be something that's very important, like your eternal destiny. Um, and he gives some examples here. Okay, so, so James now applies this to the religious hypothesis and says, well, the religious hypothesis, or more specifically, the choice between believe, suspend judgment, or disbelieve that God exists, well, this is a live, forced, and momentous decision. And therefore, you can either be agnostic or you can believe in God. You can't disbelieve in God. The atheist is a fool. But morally speaking, you could either be agnostic or believe even though you have no evidence one way or the other. Um, so he says, look, the best things in life are the supreme eternal things, and we are better off even now if we believe one. Uh, to convert that to a theistic hypothesis, premise one, God exists, and we are better off even now if we believe that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, this is obviously, the choice between theism, atheism, and agnosticism is obviously a live decision for for everyone, I mean, it has eternal consequences in terms of heaven or hell and that sort of thing, or or your afterlife uh, it has benefits even in this life, and it's very momentous in in that case, right? So for most people, this is a momentous live decision whether you believe or not in God, um, and also the outcomes are forced in the same way that I just said, right? That the consequences or outcomes of being an agnostic versus an atheist are exactly the same. Uh, whether you believe in hell or not, even if you, you're still living your life, the outcome is still the same, as though God doesn't exist, whether you're an agnostic or an atheist. Only if you believe God exists does your life potentially change, and maybe you get salvation or heaven. Uh, so you, you're forced. You have to take one of those two options. Um, so yeah, putting it all together, James thinks that the religious hypothesis is a genuine option. It is live, it's forced, and it's momentous. So therefore, you are allowed to be agnostic or choose to will to believe, uh, or you have, you have the right to choose to believe in God.
Um, so yeah, that's basically in a nutshell what William James says here. Um, now, what can we say by way of evaluation of James's position? Um, well, you might say, well, is the religious hypothesis truly meeting these three criteria? Is it a live option? Is it forced? And is it momentous? And you can kind of question that. I tend to think that William James is right on these three criteria. But even so, look, you can question, well, do you, even if it, it fulfills these three criteria, does that mean you actually have the right to choose to be agnostic or to believe and you're equally moral in doing so? I'm kind of iffy on that. I would agree more with William Clifford. I, I think that you should remain agnostic um, in that case. That's my own personal, ev strict evidentialist perspective. But yeah, I'll leave it to you guys. Like, what do you guys think? Do you, maybe, maybe you do have the right to just believe, uh, regardless of evidence in this circumstance. Okay, so just a recap to finish off uh, of the various positions of when the evidence is agnostic, no evidence to believe God, no evidence or arguments to think to believe in atheism, and or to disbelieve theism. In other words, they equal the same. Scriven, Michael Scriven, the atheist, says, well, in that case, you epistemically ought to presume atheism. Pascal says that you prudently better believe in theism. Clifford says, no, you strictly are morally obligated to be agnostic and suspend judgment between atheism and theism. William James finally says, you can either be agnostic or you can believe in theism. Both options are morally permissible um, because it's a live, forced, and momentous decision. So that's it. Uh, so yeah, I think that should cover that in terms of the, the uh, solo shows that I'm doing on philosophy of religion, at least for the time being, I should have enough content now that going forward, I'll have shroud shows uh, and guest shows for you guys. Um, I think the next one coming up will be with Guy Powell, my interview on his show about the Shroud of Trin. So look out for that. And um, after that, I'm hoping to get Barry Schwartz uh, and or Dr. Joseph Bergeron on the show. Uh, not sure who will be first. Uh, and then after that, uh, John Loken will be on as an agnostic. He's pro-Shroud, but an agnostic. So I want to interview him, what he has to say about the uh, situation there. So we go for that. Uh, yeah, other than that, that's it for today. So have a great day. All right, bye-bye.